0: Hello and welcome to the Neurodivergence and Mental Health podcast. My name is Sally Nilsson and I'm a psychotherapist, published author, public speaker, and mum. I discovered my autism and ADHD aged 56 in March 2021, and having rewritten my life story, I'm on a quest to advocate for neurodivergent community. I hope you enjoy listening to my incredible guests sharing their experiences of autism, ADHD, dyslexia, dyspraxia, dyscalculia, Tourette's and OCD. We talk about growing up, education, work and personal stories and how mental health has played its part in shaping lives. Our conversations cover spectrums, traits, challenges, acceptance and successes So sit back, relax, and find out what it means to feel, think, and be different in a neurotypical world. Hello Max, it's so good to have you on the podcast. I've been really inspired by the work you do and your advocacy for the neurodivergent community. We've been on a few talks and webinars together and it's great to meet you properly. I'd like to start, if I may, by asking you to introduce yourself and to tell me about what you do in the realms of neurodivergency, please.
1: Right, so I was born 64 years ago in London to Austro-Hungarian parents. I've moved around a lot from the northwest of Scotland to the southeast of France. And now I live in the Scottish borders in Selkirk, where I also lived before spending 13 years in Edinburgh. And strangely, this is home as nowhere ever has been before. Um, and this is a digression um, but I always found it very strange that I felt at home in this area and then I discovered that on Trimontium the three hills outside Melrose which is quite close they had found some axe heads which were only made in the area that my parents come from so my distant 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 ancestors lived here astonishing anyway that's a digression
0: no I, well you see I could just stop there and talk about that yeah. for the next half an hour because it's just so weird oh I, I love that yeah, yeah you're, you're back at your roots you're where you belong totally and who, who knew oh that's incredible I love that I really love that yeah so um, Max um, tell me a little bit about what you do um, in the realms of neurodivergency please
1: Uh, I'm a counsellor slash psychotherapist. I'm still not quite sure what the difference is, but I'm both. Uh, I've been professionally fully out as autistic since the middle of 2019. And I'd say that since then, my private practice has been made up of about 80% neurodivergent people. I've also written articles and been interviewed for podcasts, I think this is the third, and done presentations and training. I never thought I would do that sort of thing, and I'm still slightly surprised. I also find myself a slightly reluctant activist, which takes up rather more time than I would like. I thought I was invested in political campaigning, but this takes it to another level. I've become used to gently, or not so gently because I'm not very diplomatic, correcting misunderstandings, stereotypes, and ableism. Above all, I've put my energy into countering the misunderstanding, well, the untruth, that autistic people do not have empathy or theory of mind. What I didn't expect, nobody expected it, that was a curveball, was that a huge study has been launched called Spectrum 10K, which aims to collect the DNA of 10,000 autistic people, some of them children too young to give consent. The team of researchers is 100% non-autistic and nobody has so far been able to explain how exactly the study will benefit autistic people. We are told that the researchers are not looking for a cure, that they are against eugenics. That's great, so we obviously, but we are told also that the DNA will be kept and will be available to other researchers in the future. There can be no guarantee that it will never be used to seek for a cure or for a way of screening unborn children for autism. In common with a huge number of autistic people throughout the UK, I've joined the outcry against this study. I'm even thinking of going all the way down to Cambridge from the Scottish borders to join the protest. It has been paused. I don't think they expected quite such a concerted response, but for how long? Um, Autistic people have nothing against research and I'm doing some myself. There are huge numbers of autistic researchers but we don't have access to the sort of money that's attracted by a name like Simon Baron-Cohen. What actually autistic people want from research is not to find the gene or genes for autism, if you even could, but ways to counter the prevailing ableist orthodoxy, to manage the co-occurring conditions that make life in our neurotypical society so difficult, and indeed manage that society itself. How to change society, what support and what adjustments are needed, how to improve our access to education, healthcare, including mental healthcare and employment, which interventions are helpful, which harmful, ultimately maybe which legislation should be passed. How, in other words, to level the playing field? And that's where the funding needs to go. As I say, all this is taking up rather more time than I would like, but it could be literally life or death for future generations. So I hope you didn't mind that digression.
0: No, I absolutely don't. And, and I'd like to add my little bit, if it's OK, Max. Um, Please. No, I was uh, diagnosed <laughs> um, in March 2021, aged 56. But since January 2020, I have done hundreds of hours of research about neurodivergency and what mine might be. And it's been an incredible journey, stressful, I've been burnt out. It's been such a journey of identity, of discovering who I am. And recently, just a few months ago, I felt so happy knowing who I am and knowing that my skills and my challenges mean something. It was just so important and then the spectrum 10k project came out and i read about it not you know every single word but i read about it and spoke to people about it and i think for me the overriding thing is i've just found out that i'm autistic and i love it and it's it's an amazing thing for me i love Are it you too honestly telling me now <laughs> 56 years later that there is a possible plan that you might eradicate people like me in the future. I can't, I can't cope with that, and because I'm autistic, I am very much into justice and to what is right and what is wrong. And I agree with you, it has been paused, but the way I think about that is, I hope to God that they are not repackaging it, um, going to use different terminology so that it's uh, more palatable, for the autistic community, but doing exactly the same thing in the first place. So I'm with you 100% as as many, many other people are. We're not pitchforks at dawn. We just want clarity. (laughs) We want to know what we're doing. And I didn't know that there was um, a protest in Cambridge. So I'll ask you more about that afterwards. So thank you so much for telling me about that. Very, very important information. So um, back to autism.
1: Um, So, Max, what is your neurodivergency? I'm autistic, that's my diagnosis. I know that PDA is not a diagnosis, so to speak, in Scotland, but I identify very strongly with that. PDA, for those who don't know, stands for Pathological Demand Avoidance or preferably Persistent Demand Avoidance. This means that we experience any demand and that includes demands that we make of ourselves as a threat to our autonomy and well being, even to our very identity. Inevitably, that means that demands are extremely anxiety provoking. If anyone wants to know more about that, I can recommend Harry Thompson's The PDA Paradox. I've known that I was autistic for just over six years and I was diagnosed in 2019. I don't have any other diagnosed co occurring conditions except hyperacusis. I was diagnosed with hyperacusis in the late 1980s. Of course, What's nobody that? ever made it. Um Hyperacusis means that you hear everything much louder than everybody else. And it's very, very common with autistic people. And of course, nobody thought, oh, hyperacusis. I wonder if she's got any other sensory sensitivities. I wonder if maybe because that was the 1980s. Gosh. So I smile when I think about that. You know, that was the first thing that was because people were saying, oh, you don't hear. You don't seem to hear in, in, in crowded places you you don't hear us maybe you've got hearing loss and I thought no but I then went I went, got my hearing tested and the, the the clinician said whoa you've got hyperacusis
0: how incredible
1: yeah it's
0: a 1980s I know there's another um um condition called uh, misophonia and I don't know yes. what I've got all I know is that sound is an incredible part of me um music nature sound behind the walls too loud too quiet all sorts of different things and i've never had a hearing test so maybe that's something for the future mm. really yeah. really interesting and um so can you tell why this is going on to something different and it so i would heard you on another podcast a fantastic square peg pod, podcast and um i was really fascinated about this And I wonder, um, can you tell me a little bit about um, your parents and how their history has had an impact on your identity?
1: My parents were both from what is now Bratislava in Slovakia. Um, My mother's family was Jewish and somehow they got her on a train to England. I think she was 16, just in time. My father, not being Jewish, was able to follow later. Some members of the family had already left. They stayed in England for a while, and then they emigrated to Canada. I've just got back in touch with them, which is interesting. Of those who couldn't or didn't leave, only a handful survived. My grandparents, I am now sure, died in Auschwitz. And that's why I'm called Maximilian Maria. Um, Maximilian Colbert. Maximilian Kolbe was a Franciscan friar who was put in Auschwitz for refusing to renounce his Polish nationality, refusing to be who he wasn't, and for harboring Jews. And the interesting thing is that Poland was at that time, maybe still is, I don't know, quite an anti Semitic environment, but Maximilian wasn't having any. He, he, he harbored Jews. He knew he'd end in Auschwitz. He did end in Auschwitz and he gave his life for a fellow prisoner. He's a hard act to follow um i have him always in mind and i'm honored to have his name um that's the reason for max people always think i'm a man when 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 they've just just seen my name and they go oh right when they see me um i'm fairly sure my father was autistic i'm very like him in every way though i don't measure up to him in poetic talent he was a poet novelist playwright and translator and in latter years, he was known as the professor, as he was awarded an honorary professor- professorship at Vienna University for services to literature. I think that's not bad for a working class boy who left school at 14.
0: That's incredible. Yeah, incredible.
1: pretty terrific, my father. But you, want, you, you wanted to have experiences, experienced one of his rages. And uh, do you follow him on that? <laughs> uh, I used to. I used to, until I understood um, and found other ways of, of, of dealing with the sensations that caused the rages. But was of course, that, he didn't know.
0: Was that through your training as a psychotherapist that you, that you learned how to do that?
1: No, knowing that I was autistic.
0: Really? So you, because previ- you came up with coping mechanisms and skills yourself when you
1: discovered that you're autistic and... and well, I understood it. Yeah. I understood why. Um, Previously, i just squashed it. You know, un, you know, you don't blow up when, you, when, you, when you're an adult. Um, but previously, i just squashed it, which was really difficult. And then I thought, aha, now I know why this, 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 and this are stressful. We just will not put ourselves in that situation.
0: That's incredible. And identity, certainly the clients that come to see me, identity is such an important part. It starts off with listening and validation and then discovering who you are. Um, and it's it's just an incredible thing. I know who I am, and actually, I I know who yes. I am more than so many neurotypicals. I believe possibly don't.
1: How That's do you, right. Yes. Do you
0: feel the same?
1: I absolutely do. Yes. I mean, the, the, I'm like with as with so many people, the realizing I was autistic, the diagnosis was only in order to be an alt autistic therapist. But realizing I was autistic was just, of course. Oh, okay, that, that, that explains this, 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 everything. And what I always say, I realised I was not mad, bad and dangerous to know simply wired differently. Um, so many people have heard that, you know. Yeah, yes, like, like you, I know who I am. And I, I really like
0: the mad, bad and, not, and dangerous to know because, you know, I spent so many times in my life thinking I was mentally ill and being gas, I don't say gaslit or gas lighted and seeing yes. therapists who weren't anywhere near who i was and i was therapizing them half the time and yes. uh, it it is just incredible because when you discover i mean i'm autistic adhd but then you rewrite your life story and you think well, you? that is why that happened that is why that happened I, it wasn't trauma i was diagnosed you know one of the psychotherapists said it's trauma no it wasn't i behaved the way i i did because of autism and because of adhd incredible. And one of the things that happened to me is that I, I had a terrible problem with alcohol um, and I, um, I'm sober for four years. I'll never drink again, but my goodness, I know that that was ADHD. I know it was ADHD. Makes sense.
1: Totally makes sense. And it really leads to
0: the next question, Max. Um, I understand your partner of many years was an alcoholic. Um, how did their difficulties affect your mental health?
1: And to be honest, although Jean's alcoholism was difficult and eventually impossible to live with, and interestingly, her brother was also an alcoholic, um, his wife left him and that was enough to make him think, oh, okay, I need to choose. But Jean wasn't able to do that. She was, you know, she didn't live very much longer after that. Sadly, I wish I'd stayed there. Um, Her difficulties didn't affect my mental health they did something much more important. They made me make the decision finally to train as a counsellor. I'd, I'd been a Samaritan before and worked on two helplines and volunteered for Cruiser Bereavement Care Scotland, but I was convinced that I could never afford to do the full training. I've never had much money. My time with Jean, once I understood that I couldn't help her and had to leave for my own safety, made me realise that I had to take charge of my life and do what I knew I was made for. So it made, meant working crazy shifts as an agency care worker throughout my training and it nearly killed me, but it was so worth it.
0: That's, you know, that is so incredible to hear. And I think a lot of um, psychotherapists and counsellors, possibly coaches and mentors, it's what they've gone through within their own life. They, they want to know more about themselves um, and I'm actually re- well, listening on, um, to an audio book on paleoanthropology at the moment. And huh? I've, I've decided that um, as I've got older, but post 45, for some reason I'm much more interested in philosophy and sociology. I can't believe I'm even saying that to you with the career that, and all the 23 jobs that I've had, but certainly for psychotherapy, I wanted to know about myself first before I could be of value to others. Yes. And I did. And, uh, and it means an awful lot. And also at my age, I needed a career that wasn't age restrictive that I could do until I stopped working. And, and, this, and it's been the best decision I ever made apart from anything working for myself. And, you know, it, it, it makes such a difference. Um, I mean, you have uh, degrees um, from both Oxford and Cambridge. Please tell me about your time at such renowned universities. How did being autistic challenge you in such environments?
1: Well, it didn't challenge me at all. I mean, in some ways, it was the ideal environment. I'd got away from home and school, both of which environments were confusing and frightening. Imagine being an only child of demanding parents at a very strict school when you are unknown to yourself autistic with a strong streak of PDA. Remember that a person with PDA is not being naughty or difficult. We experience demand as an existential threat. It means you're permanently terrified. At Cambridge, and especially later at Oxford where I wrote my thesis, I was free to arrange my life as I wanted it. You can be as eccentric as you like in universities like that. All they care about really is whether you're good at your subject, and I was. For people who think that all autistic people are mathematicians, computer programmers, and scientists, my subjects were classics and theology, specializing in ancient Greek poetry, Christian and otherwise.
0: That's, uh, sorry that's it 's mind blowing what you know what you 've done and the way your mind works i love I love the fact that university well the universities you were at gave you the yeah. opportunity to do that i can 't i 'm not sure whether all universities do that and have the pastoral no. care for People who um, are on any type of spectrum, but that's a that's a conversation for another day, I think.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I just jump in and say there was no pastoral care of any kind. I mean, they were talking nineteen seventies, but I didn't need it because I could be me. Exactly. <laughs> I, yes, <laughs> I, you
0: could be you, and didn't need um, it. I work with clients about with conformity. It's all very well saying take off the mask. You know, we, we live with a mask on our face, and we can take it off and put it on at will. But, you know, it's, it's just difficult to do that when you're able to be yourself, to say what you want to say and be human and honest is is an incredible thing. And I think as mm-hmm. advocates, that's what we're trying to aim for in society. So I see you're a person centred um, psychotherapist with particular interest in bereavement, autism, spirituality, alcohol and dementia care, which are all such important areas of mental health. I'm a human given psychotherapist and believe that every single person who comes to see me is human first. I work with the client's model of reality in autism, listening, being patient and not trying to fix a prere- prerequisites for good therapy, I believe anyway. What do you think makes a good therapist and do you think there is an added advantage to being neurodivergent, especially when supporting neurodivergent clients?
1: Yet, just to be clear, although my counselling skills certificate was done with Alcohol Focus Scotland, because that seemed to be the obvious place to go because of Jean, I don't take clients who present with issues around alcohol or their or their partners. It may happen that I later discover that a client does struggle with alcohol or their partner does, and then we address that as we address anything else. But I quickly realised during that counselling skills certificate that that was not going to be an area I wanted to specialise in. To oversimplify, I would had quite a, enough of all that during the years I was with Jean. And I didn't find, as I did with my experience of spiritual abuse, that I had grown or changed in any way through the experience. I simply wanted to put it behind me. I mean, specialisms are an odd thing. As I say in my profile in the counseling directory, I hesitate to say that I specialize in any particular issue, and you will recognize this. I hope I specialize in listening deeply and with attention to human beings. And yet I do list four specialisms, people suffering from anxiety, depression, or low, esteem, low self-esteem, perhaps as an effect of trauma. I don't call myself a trauma specialist, but in working with autistic people, I meet traumatized people all the time loss and bereavement, spirituality, including spiritual abuse, and autistic people. Uh, Carl Rogers reminds us the best vantage point for understanding behavior is from the internal frame of reference of the individual. That You will <laughs> totally agree with that one. He believed that what he called the core conditions are necessary and sufficient for therapeutic to change to occur. That's for the client to become the self that they truly are. Now he nicked that phrase from Kierkegaard and Kierkegaard was a special interest of mine for a long time. And I was pleased to note that Carl Rogers who founded my therapeutic modality shared that interest. There are actually six core conditions, not three as are often stated. And I think it's important to list them. There's got to be psychological contact and Many sessions of therapy might be needed to achieve that. As I always say, time spent building a relationship in the therapy room is never wasted. Second, the client has got to acknowledge that there's something up, there's something not right. Rogers called that incongruence. And that's why therapy doesn't tend to work if a client is sent by someone else. Third, and this chimes so well with what we were saying about identity, The therapist needs to be thoroughly themselves and comfortable being so. That doesn't mean we're totally together or or totally fixed, not at all. Roger's called that congruence. Fourth, the therapist needs to accept the client as they are without judgment. Roger's called that unconditional positive regard. Fifth, the therapist has to experience true empathy, which so many people would say that autistic people don't have, nonsense. All that means is seeing things as far as possible from the client's point of view. It doesn't need to be touchy-feely. Some clients would hate that. A lot of autistic clients would really hate that. (laughs) And finally, the client has got to be aware of the unconditional positive regard and the empathy, at least to some degree. So that is necessary and sufficient, but it's sometimes useful to have knowledge and experience as well. And that's where say, being autistic with an autistic client comes in. And have I got time for my favourite quotation from Jean Gendlin, who founded Focusing Therapy?
0: Yes, please.
1: Yeah. When I sit down with someone, I take my troubles and feelings and put them over here on one side, close, because I might need them. I might want to go in there and see something. And I take all the things that I've learned, client-centred therapy, reflection, Focusing, gestalt, psychoanalytic concepts, and everything else. I wish I had even more. And I put them over here on the other side, close. And this is my favorite bit, and I always get emotional. Then I'm just here with my eyes, and there is this other being. If they happen to look into my eyes, they will see that I am just a shaky being. I have to tolerate that. They may not look, but if they do, they will see that. They will see the slightly shy, slightly withdrawing, insecure existence that I am. I have learned that that is okay. I do not need to be emotionally secure and firmly present. I just need to be present. There are no qualifications for the kind of person I must be. What is wanted for the big therapy process, the big development process, is a person who will be present. And so I've gradually become convinced that even I can be that. And that was the great Gene Gendlin. Not somebody like me, but the great Gene Gendlin. Now autistic hyperfocus is truly wonderful for being present. You need to be who you are, identity, and you need to be okay with that. You need to know your demons. You don't need to be fixed. But you need to know your demons and need to be able to keep them out of the therapy room. You need to be able to tell them politely. Thank you for your input, but we don't need you here. I'll listen to you afterwards. I think, on the whole, it's better for a client not to have to educate the therapist. It is useful for a client that I'm a survivor of spiritual abuse, and so I know the ways in which it is typically perpetrated and the effects that it typically has. There. general things that a client does not have to explain to me. Of course, everybody experiences and responds differently, but with a therapist who has the knowledge, the understanding, the client can cut to the chase and talk about their own experience rather than having to explain the what and the why and the how. CPD is useful, but in some areas, either it is lacking or it can only take you so far. And that is most certainly true in the area of autism. I've said, and I still think this, that I'd rather have a therapist who knows nothing and knows they know nothing than somebody who thinks they're an expert and aren't, and isn't. But much better than either is someone who really does know what the autistic client is talking about because they are themselves autistic. Just as I don't need the concepts of cult pseudo personality or love bombing explained to me by a victim of spiritual abuse I don't need the concept of sensory sensitivity or double empathy explained to me by a fellow artist. So we can cut to the chase. So yes, there's that. Then there's the hyperfocus, which gives me the, fo- the capacity to be totally absorbed in my client, what they are saying, what they are not saying, what their face and their body are doing. I think you could drop a bomb next to my counseling room and I would hardly register it i register a ticking clock though. Mm-hmm. It is genuine. generally the client who first notices that my little cat is climbing up the panel, the outside of the glass panel door behind me and meowing fit to burst. I won't hear it. And another, the most important perhaps, is the fact that I do not assume. I do not assume that I know what my client is meaning or feeling or experiencing. I have had a lifetime of knowing that I can't assume because I'd probably be wrong. I learned the value of that when I was working with neurotypicals, and I've transferred it to my work with fellow autists. Yet, probably if I assumed with them, I'd be right more often than not. But it's much more effective not to assume, to ask, to get the nuances. to be sure. I'm sure you feel the same.
0: Thank you so much, Max, for for telling me that. And I've taken so much from what you've said. there are so many different models of therapy and we can be you know we can have degrees you know you can go to university you can have as much training as you like but unless you are a human that is prepared you know and happy and natural to sit in front of another human being and watch and listen and give the time that is needed you know, it's so it's important. I mean, my model of therapy, human givens, is brief sol- solution-focused therapy. And that's very good for neurotypicals. But I've discovered now, I'm working with neurodivergent um, clients, that it that needs to change for this type of client because they might be coming to me with um, co-occurring conditions. We need to look at um, how one trait is being managed, how they're coping with something else, how they feel at that session. Each session will be something will be something different will be brought in. Mm -hmm. Um, And also because I'm neurodivergent, I've got so much life experience and I don't have to tell them. I mean, sometimes if it's if it's the right thing to do, I do, but not often. I don't have to tell them about that but when they start telling me something, I can be empathic. I can understand what they're saying to me. And so now my my therapy is longer and, and my, I'm seeing my clients for a lot longer and we're doing wonderful therapy together. Um, some therapies work better than others. Um, as you said before, but we're all in this together and we're trying to to help and and that's got to be a good thing. So thank you again for um, explaining that. Um, Max, can you tell me about your assessment and diagnosis journey, please?
1: Well, looking back with hindsight, I can see things in my childhood that I can now explain. But at the time we're seen as being difficult, picky, lazy, thoughtless, naughty. Haven't we all heard this string of adjectives? I don't actually remember much about childhood. I suspect there's something quite strong in me which would rather not. I, know, I don't mean anything terrible happened, I'm sure it didn't, but I do know that I was constantly in trouble and never knew why, and that everything around me was a mystery, threatening and quite frightening. I do know that I was taken to a psychoanalyst friend of the family when I was very young, though I don't know why. Not surprisingly, I mean this was in the 1960 s and I was female and highly intelligent and very articulate. She didn't spot the autism. So far as I know, she didn't misdiagnose either, for which I am profoundly grateful. I suspect she just said nothing wrong with this kiddie, Stop worrying," which was, and was not true. I'm one of those rare, lucky autistic people who has never had mental health issues. There have been bad times, some very bad times, but my logical mind has always come to the rescue and asked me the question that I often ask clients, how would you expect to feel? So rather than calling something anxiety or depression and pathologizing it, I would think, well, I'm feeling scared or anxious for a good reason. I'm feeling sad for a good reason. And that has always stood me in good stead. I also somehow have always had a strong sense that it was okay to be me even when so many people were telling me that it wasn't. I think that was partly because I have always had very good and close friends who genuinely love and like me for who I am. And from my very birth, I had my uncle, not a real uncle, Giulio. He was the one person who always took me as I was, was always patient, always listened, always understood, or told me when he didn't and listened to the explanation. I think he is the one person most responsible for my turning out as well-balanced and together as I have. He was that lovely thing, a neurotypical person who positively revels in difference. Um, He died more than 20 years ago. I can still hardly talk about him without crying. I miss him so much. Mm. As for the others, honestly, who cares? Mm -hmm. I'm also unusual in that my autism self-diagnosis and diagnosis did not come at a time of crisis or breakdown. I think I'm so lucky. I was living in my second favorite place in the world, shortly to move back to my very favorite, was doing my dream job, had connected with two groups of people who shared two of my special interests, traditional music and politics, and generally was very content with life. What happened was that one of those people, Kath, was also a member of SWAN Scottish Women's Autism Network. And as I met more of them, I realized, oh, hang on, here are people who process like me. So I still got a series of messages between me and Kath, where I quizzed her on being autistic from the inside. It's not about experiences, it's about, about behaviors. You know, I've so often said that when I read Naoki Higashida's writing, I can identify with almost everything. High functioning, low functioning, nonverbal, hyperverbal male presentation, female presentation, they look different, but the actual experience of the autism is the same. So I'd describe an experience or a style of sensory or cognitive processing and ask Kath, is that a thing? And Kath would invariably reply, indeed it is a thing, and explain why. So these messages culminating in my saying on the 4th of June, 2015, and yes, I celebrate the 4th of June. May I just assume, given what I think is overwhelming evidence, that I'm autistic? It confirms my belief that I'm not just a weird and difficult and horrible person and makes sense of so much. This is how I'm wired, and it's a good way to be wired, even if some people don't get it. And Kath replied, it never occurred to me that you (laughs) weren't. So I didn't need an official diagnosis until I got my first autistic client. And then it was immediately obvious to me that autistic people should have the option of autistic therapists. And search as I might, I couldn't find a single therapist, not one, who was out autistic. So I decided to be the first. Probably not the first, but the first in the counselling directory anyway. But to do that, I needed a diagnosis. I wasn't going to put myself through the NHS process. I mean, apart from anything else, what GP is going to refer A woman in her 60s with no history of mental health issues, no obvious co-occurring conditions. I will stress no obvious co-occurring conditions. Working full time as a counsellor with her own house, hyperverbal and passing almost perfectly as neurotypical. I wasn't going to do that. So I went private. Within a month of referring myself, I had my diagnosis. The process took an entire day and it was pretty grueling. And the report was a hard read because as it had to be, it was based entirely on my deficiencies and weaknesses. As Chris Bonello says, I am high functioning until I'm not. An amusing sidelight on that is that she said at the end, we could have dispensed with the entire process. As soon as I saw you hovering around the coffee machine, no idea where the queue was or who was in it or which direction it went in, and then quite blank as to how the machine worked, I knew it well at once. And as soon as I stated clearly in the counselling directory that I was autistic, my private practice filled up with autistic clients. I gave up my part-time job as student counsellor at Edinburgh University to accommodate more clients and have been full-time self-employed ever since. And now this is really important for other autistic therapists out there. I would caution any other autists who are thinking of going down this route, remember your limits and play to your strengths. If you are like me, you could do the actual counseling all day. But don't forget, there are case notes, there is admin, there is diary, there are emails, there are accounts, there are reminders, There are letters to doctors, psychologists, the DWP. If you are also a supervisor, there is paperwork for your trainees, references, reports to universities and training institutes. There is commuting or fighting with Zoom or both. There is CPD. There are the requirements of your professional body and HMRC and your insurance, your insurers. 20-odd hours of counselling and supervising a week equates to a very, very full-time job. I give you the benefit of my mistakes, don't take on too much. It is hard to turn people away, but you must. And it's hard to recognize that we autists are already using so much of our energy on simply surviving in society and in an environment not designed for us, that we genuinely often cannot do as much as our neurotypical peers but we must recognise it and live accordingly. Sorry if that sounded a bit like a fervorino, but it's so important.
0: It is very important. And, you know, I I hang on to your every word um, talking about that. But because my brain is ADHD, I'm kind of at the end and thinking what what the best thing to pick out from that is. Um, And I think the whole counselling psychotherapy process is, is difficult. It's so difficult for neurodivergent people to go through the process of assessment and diagnosis. But, you know, let's not forget that one of the biggest parts of it is post-diagnosis. So, you, you know, if you do finally manage to get your diagnosis, and I went through the same thing as you, I, I'm far too communicative and, and, you know, eye contact and everything else. What do you do with people afterwards? It's post-diag, you know. I I find post-diagnosis is so important. So, and, and and that is an area that we must look at. And as far as society is concerned, the medical profession and the therapeutic profession, then for me, there needs to be more training. More neurotypical counselors must know about the different spectrums and the traits within the spectrums, because um I I feel quite bad really that during my um psychotherapy work that I've done in private practice before I was diagnosed over the years I have seen people that were would have been neurodivergent in one way and I could have gone on a different way I would have supported them in a different way and I didn't I
1: couldn't know you can't look back but you can't I, look back. I can you can't look back
0: and and uh, similar to you as soon as I got my autistic diagnosis from Sarah Hendricks, who is um, a fantastic woman in my book, and uh, with 800 hours of assessments and 10 years behind her as an autistic person herself, immediately I came out. I came out everywhere, and I shouted it from the rooftops. Um, not many people are listening, quite frankly, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it doesn't matter. I'm, on, I'm in the counselling directory too, and I'm trying to find other um, neurodivergent counsellors and psychotherapists to build a list it's really hard it's almost like finding mm. needles in haystacks Isn't thank it? you again thank you so much for that Max um, so um, oh, on a, a brighter note um, I would love to know what your hobbies and special interests are please
1: right I'm restricting myself severely because if you get me onto one of these subjects you will never get away <laughs> so there have always been special interests that have come and gone. But alongside that, there has been one that has been there ever since I remember, and that is traditional song and music. Looking back through my life, the only thing that's changed is which country or area. Well, it started in Spain when I was really quite young nine, ten. It continued to Naples, travelled through Wales, Hungary, and France before settling for the moment in the Gaeltoch of Scotland and Ireland. That's not what you'd find in a diagnostic handbook. And the odd thing is that I'm not particularly musical. My mother was a professional cellist in her youth, and she was most distressed that I hadn't inherited her gift. What I have inherited is my father's good voice and his slightly dodgy sense of pitch. My mother would have been even more distressed to know that while I do still love classical music, that is not my passion. I would advise you never to raise the subject of Gaelic song in my presence or you will never get away. <laughs> Hyperverbal, remember? <laughs> I think really that, that, that's it. Um, because if I go on, we'll never get away. Well, let's, let's get
0: together and talk about it. I mean, my, my let's older, get together and talk about it. I'd love to. My eldest son, he uh, he loves music from all different countries, and so do I. I remember being in the Gambia and listening to the Senegalese music, which completely blew my mind. I absolutely uh. Love it. And uh, now, oh God, I'm, I'm really terrible by no, for knowing which composer, which piece of music, and everything else. But one of my favourite ones that I dance around to the kitchen with, and please put me right if you know, Brahms Hungarian Folk Dance.
1: Um, I don't know which, which, which one you mean but, um, okay, well, but it's, uh, yeah. think,
0: I'm pretty sure it's Brahms at Hungarian Folk Dance and it is fantastic and I love the Russian composers I absolutely love the Russian composers because they're so loud and stimulating oh I just absolutely love them um, thank you so much for that and again I've got special interests come and go and hobbies that I absolutely they're so important for me and I absolutely love them resin craft is the one and i've produced about 20 pieces so far absolutely love it so um just to wind us up now um oh, what a fantastic um podcast this has been uh, max how would you like to see positive change at home at school and in the workplace to help all neurodivergent people feel included and valued members of society
1: Well, I think I'd take issue with the phrase to help all neurodivergent people feel included and valued members of society. I'm not criticizing at all, but um, special interest language. I don't want us to feel included. I want us to be included. And that's the problem with Spectrum 10K. Don't let me get onto that again. Um, And it's also one of my many, many problems with the autism community as opposed to the autistic community. The community of people who think they know about autism as opposed to the community of people who are actually autistic. And I don't want us to feel valued. We are valuable. I want us to be valued. I want our value to be recognized in action, not in words. We autists have the reputation of being rigid and unadaptable, and nothing could be further from the truth. We spend our entire lives trying to adapt to this strange neurotypical world that we do not understand, that hurts our eyes, our ears, and our skin, confuses and overwhelms our brain, even more so if we also have ADHD or PDA. We learn the steps and the words of the dances and the dialogues with no rules or unfathomable rules. We don't understand them, so we get them wrong time and time again. But we keep trying through meltdowns, shutdowns, and burnout. If we seem rigid and unadaptable, it's because we are already as adaptable as we are able and we are already bent out of shape. And that's what masking and camouflaging are. They're not a success story. They are disaster and sometimes an agony. They don't make life easier or happier, as the autism community seem to think. They can make it unbearable. And that is why so many interventions, especially for children, are so harmful. They are aimed at making autistic children behave more neurotypical, not making them happier autists. As someone said, and I wish I knew who said it, all behavior is communication. Forcibly changing a person's behavior is shutting down their communication. And in some cases, with nonverbal autists, and especially with kiddies, that is the only communication that is available to them. You need to listen to their behavior, not to shut it down. So what I'd like to see, I think it's clear what I'd like to see in schools, is the non-autistic community doing some adapting. Their way is not normal and ours abnormal, except in the strictly literal sense that theirs is the norm. Theirs is common and ours is uncommon. I would like to see the adaptations that we need being as normal, as going without saying, as lifts, ramps, automatic doors, loop systems, braille signs. I want to see a world where when a person says they cannot work in a room with fluorescent lighting and a radio playing incessantly, I've been there, then they are given a different place to work. And if that takes time to identify, then at least the radio is turned off at once, without argument. I would like to see the medical model of disability consigned to the dustbin of history now. A wheelchair user is not told, oh, we're sorry you don't like our stairs. Lots of people think they're terrific. We should not be told, we are sorry you don't like Radio 2 playing while you're trying to work. Lots of people really like it. The sort of adaptations I was given at Edinburgh University Counselling Service should not be so exceptional that I hardly dared ask and was totally astonished when I was just told yes. They should be the norm. If I can't work in a room with fluorescent lighting and no window, then I can't. They changed my room. They didn't argue. If I can't manage a fire drill in a busy and huge university library with tens of hundreds of students thundering down the stairs, then I should not have to. Easy to do what they did, which was warn me and let me leave the building before those paralysing bells start. Self-preservation will kick in soon enough if there's a real fire. And if the bells start and I haven't been warned, I will know there is and my line manager will will keep an eye out for me. If I have face blindness, I do. It is not a problem for reception to tell me where my student is sitting when they ring through to say they have arrived and so on. Edinburgh University, I cannot say it often enough, were a shining beacon of making me feel that I could be who I was. I don't know so much about home or school, but those are my thoughts about work. My most recent experience as a student at a university was sadly not as good as my experience as a staff member at Edinburgh. The disability officer was really sweet, but she knew nothing about autism, and I suspect that l- very little about any invisible disability. A particular difficulty that was never solved was that of the oral exam. I was stud- studying Gaelic. In common with many autistic people, I'm pretty much unable to do small talk or to think up something to say about a subject about which I have nothing to say. Oral exams were based on being able to invent off the cuff. Every oral exam consisted of me managing one sentence and then drying, because I had nothing else to say. I explained over and over again that this would happen in English too, but somehow nobody understood. My favorite subject, not, was, if you could invite anyone to a party, whom would you invite and what would you do at the party? Oh, what? I, I don't invite anyone to parties. The last party I went to under protest was a farewell party at Cambridge in 1978. On the rare occasion I'm at a gathering, I either go and wash up or sit on the stairs and talk to the dog. Well, if I'd been given five minutes to think up something to say, which I consistently asked for, I asked for five minutes to think of something to say, not enough time to look up the grammar. I might've managed the oral. As it was, all I could say off the, off the cuff was <laughs> which means I never go to parties, so I haven't a clue. I failed. <laughs> My Gaelic's pretty good. My invention off the cuff, not so much. So for universities that don't want to reproduce that experience for their students, there is an excellent chapter in the Neurodiversity Reader on what autistic university students might find difficult and a list of potential reasonable adjustments. That is a wonderful book, by the way, the Neurodiversity Reader, I'm sure you've got it.
0: There are so many, there's so much need for change. There's need for change, um, there's need for understanding. from from childbirth and what happened there, for parenting, for playgroup, primary school, junior school, middle school, big school, college, university and the workplace and on and on. Mm. I think that we are seeing a watershed moment. I don't even know if Covid had something to do with it, that's where mm. mine came out of, because I've broken both my ankles and I was trapped and I had a family and I couldn't move and this was last August and uh, and so my ADHD symptoms, probably autistic symptoms, were terrible because there were spiders all around me, as much as I love them, I don't want them on my face. And But the thing is, is the thing about change, is that it does need people like you Max people like me people in the autistic community yeah. to talk to join to have a voice to bang a drum to make things be different and we can do this by communicating in a good way and in a it's not everyone's articulate but we all need to talk together and to be together to do it Max I have enjoyed this podcast uh, more than you could know and um i feel quite emotional myself with so much of what you have said and um i all i can say is I'm, I'm truly grateful um thank you so so much and enjoy the beautiful environment you must be in up in the scottish borders um thank you so much once again
1: well thank you very much for having me
0: <laughs> you're most welcome thank you goodbye max bye Thank you very much for listening to the Neurodivergence and Mental Health Podcast. Links and resources will be at the end in the show notes. I very much look forward to meeting you again. Thanks for listening. Bye.